You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And I'm happy to be joined again by a guest we've had on recently. Uh, Adam Mount from the Federation of American Scientists is back on the podcast today. How are you doing today, Adam? I'm all right. Yet again, shell-shocked. Yeah, I'm, I'm shell-shocked too. And I've been up for a long time. Uh, one of the pitfalls of watching Asia from the eastern coast of the United States is that time zones sometimes don't work out too well. And obviously, Adam, we are uh, here today on uh, June 12th, the night of June 12th, to discuss the outcomes of the Historic, say what you will about it, it is historic, summit mm-hmm. between Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Uh, the two leaders had a fairly on-script summit um, at the Capella Hotel on Sentosa Island in Singapore. Um, there were a few moments where things got a little bit off the rails, and we had a Trump moment when it came to uh, the discussion of the future of U.S. forces on the, uh, on the Korean Peninsula. We'll get to that in a bit. But for the most part, um, the summit went according to plan. Um, and, you know, we've we've had a few hours now of punditry, about 12 hours of punditry, actually. And I think we sort of get a sense of a few kind of schools of thought forming around this issue, right? On one level, you have the, the more um, generalist analytical take that the summit was a success in the sense that it's better than where we were in November 2017, and it's certainly better than heading into nuclear war, um, which, fine, you know, that's, that's I think, trivially true. A lot of things are better than nuclear war. Uh, anything that isn't nuclear war is better than <laughs> nuclear war, in my view. Um, and then you have um, another school of thought that, um, you know, is, I think, where I would place myself, um, and perhaps you place yourself based on what you've been tweeting, um, that, you know, you look at the history of U.S.-North Korea statements uh, going all the way back to 1993. In fact, it was June 11th, 1993, when the United States and North Korea penned their first ever bilateral joint statement in New York after working level talks. Uh, hat tip to Joshua Pollock for uh, reminding us of that a day before the summit in an excellent article at uh, Arms Control Wonk, where he really tabulates the historical record on these statements. Phenomenally and, helpful, yes. Yeah. And you look at that, yeah. you know, you look at that record and you look at the declaration that came out of Singapore, and you can't help but be disappointed. Um, anyways, I'm going to stop talking, Adam, and you know, I obviously, you know, want to hear what you have to say about about the summit. Um, I know there's a lot to talk about here. There's the optics. There's what comes next. There's the uh, various moments. There's what the North Koreans heard. But first, I wanted to get your take on the declaration, the Singapore Declaration of June 12, 2018, between Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un. What's your bottom line takeaway from it? Assessment of the summit has to, you know, has to take place on several different levels. You mentioned on one level, if you, any summit that keeps us out of a war is a success. And I think it was also Josh Pollack who mentioned uh, in a particularly pointed formulation, he said, if we're in this circumstance with Donald Trump as president and we're going to meet with the North Koreans in a rushed process, then I want the stakes to be as low as possible. And this is a view that I was sympathetic to as well. There was considerable risk that Donald Trump would give away concessions or try to um, repackage concessions as advantageous, as wins, that he would pile on concessions as a way of elevating the, uh, the, the visibility of the summit. And I think that concern has proved to be well-founded. Um, so 
you know, from that perspective, if we didn't give away the store uh, and it was a relatively cosmetic summit, that was also better than several alternatives. Um, I'm not sure that we even met that standard of a, a very limited, um, very modest, um, nothing for nothing summit. Uh, I, I, I disagree with the narrative that the summit went according to script. Um, this is grading Donald Trump on an enormous curve. Any other president, this would have been seen as a catastrophic performance. Um, the staging of the summit was done in a way that it provided excess legitimacy to the Kim regime. So the positioning of the American flag um, next to the North Korean flag. You know, for many of us and for many veterans, that's a chilling sight. Um, the statements that the president made um, to the effect of, it's my honor to meet with Kim Jong-un, that he is has the respect and the trust of his people, right, that North Korean political prisoners somehow came out ahead in the summit today. Mm -hmm. You know, the politically acceptable way to talk about these is to say that it's tone deaf, but it's frankly morally obscene to, you know, to not only gloss over, but to, um, you know, validate North Korean human rights abuses to this, uh, to this degree. Um, th th that picture of where Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un will be seen around the world. It will be seen by the families of North Korean political prisoners who are star literally starving and being worked to death in North Korean camps. From North Korean defectors who have escaped to free societies, from you know, to, to leaders around the world who are contemplating their own nuclear weapons programs. If this process, if this summit put in, puts in place a process that leads to increased stability, safety, and security in Northeast Asia, that meeting will have been necessary. Mm -hmm. But that image can never be taken back. We, we absolutely must make the most of it. It is a one-time event that absolutely cannot be wasted and cannot come to naught. So, you know, in many ways, I, I'm highly, I, I'm extremely concerned that the way the summit went, the way that it was scripted, the way that it was formed, the concessions that Trump piled on afterward will make it extremely difficult for us to maintain our leverage through the ensuing peace process and, and further negotiations. I think that's I think that's right, um, and you know I think um, that's you know I said as much on uh, on Twitter as the summit was playing out, and in my in a few pieces of analysis after that, I do want to visit this point about legitimacy uh, because it's actually it's actually turned out to be quite polarizing. Um, right. You know here, um, you know I again pointed this out on Twitter. I completely agree with you that everything about this summit made it. You know if you were an untrained observer and you looked at the summit meeting between these two guys and you see these flags and you know you would have no reason to believe that these weren't two countries with a long history of cordial unnormalized diplomatic relations. Right. But obviously that's not where the United States and North Korea are. Um, so I pointed out that you know you know say what you will Kim Jong-un definitely is going to get what he's always wanted out of this photo op. He does get that legitimizing effect. But I was sort of making that as a um, you know as a positivist observation. I think that was always the case. Um, even before if, you know, North Korea had entered and implemented a 
um, previous denuclearization agreements in good faith, it would have been rewarded with a presidential summit at some point. And these right. optics would have been inherent in that. Um, but I agree with you that this uh, this uh, summit itself, the pageantry itself, is a concession. And if the United States does have to sit at the table with the uh, odious tyrant that is Kim Jong-un, um, then it should well make sure that it's it's prepared, it's, it's willing to enter into talks that will result in in something real. Um, but here, you know, I think it was really a something for nothing exchange. Um, and the United States really walked away uh, with with very little. Um, I think I think that's right. Mm -hmm. If if the communique had been drafted in Pyongyang, it could have appeared in exactly the same format. Um, it, you know, it was a little astonishing just how little the United States succeeded in in inserting into that joint communique, right? You and I have talked about the language on denuclearization was astonishingly, stunningly weak, right? The, the, the formulation that many people expected was to combine CVID, complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement, um, with denuclearization of the peninsula and, and sort of shove those together. But the words verifiable and irreversible don't appear in the communique. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this strange reference that reaffirms the language in the Panmunjom Declaration, which implies that there is no additional concession being made here over and above the, the Panmunjom Summit, which most people saw as punting the issue of denuclearization. So, you know, from that perspective, it, I mean, it's really astonishing that at the height of American leverage, that no stronger commitment timetable and practical concession could be um you know could be wrong out of the north koreans right right i think that's you know a really important observation um and you're right i mean you know i personally don't um overwhelmingly credit the maximum pressure campaign with bringing kim to the table i really think it was what he says it was which is the comp uh, you know the virtual completion of his credible nuclear deterrent. Um, but certainly maximum pressure had increased U.S. economic leverage over North Korea to previously unseen levels, especially with the three sanctions resolutions last year at the U.N. Security Council. Um, right. and, and, that, and you're right. That leverage just evaporates from yeah. now on. Right? Yeah. It, it becomes harder and harder to hold North Korean to strict arms control arrangements right. rather than easier than easier and easier. Right. And maximum pressure is is, you know, dead in the water. RIP maximum pressure. The Chinese are already talking about <laughs> sanctions relief uh, for North yeah. Korea. Um, and, you know, Kim Jong-un came to the table in, in relatively good faith. And especially after the May 24th cancellation of the summit, which was, you know, we we did an emergency podcast last time. And then the summit, you know, here we are talking about the summit and it ended up happening. It really made, you know, Kim throughout this process look a little bit more like the reasonable party willing to uh, take diplomacy seriously for once. Um, I want to go back quickly to the, you know, the language on denuclearization. This is something that, you know, is probably the biggest, you know, there's a chasm here that separates Korea watchers from the general public. When, you know, I, I have to explain this in every kind of, you know, press appearance interview that I do is that the phrase complete denuclearization sounds great, right? Complete denuclearization, what's, you know, what's not to like about that? North Korea clearly says that it's going to get rid of its nuclear weapons, right? And every time it's the same thing. I mean, this this language has a long history. There are, you know, serious hermeneutics involved here with what each side understands out of these framings. And, you know, that whole proposal that we thought was live for a moment where Pompeo was suggesting that CVI 
denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula would be mashed up together. It just didn't really make sense. I mean, the the concepts are fundamentally at odds right. uh, in in terms of what the United States understands with um with CVID or with uh you know three fourths of that uh, compared to what North Korea sees. Um, and yeah, and you know reaffirming the Panmunjom um definition of denuclearization for me that was the kind of you know low water mark is that that's where we start and anything above that is where trump starts to get points for performing well and fortunately he he you know he came in at par he didn't come in under par right denuclearization did make an appearance in the in the statement but uh really there's nothing new here um and well, you know I'm that's kind of the big picture here is that north korea in this statement did not agree to anything that it had not already agreed to either at the inter-Korean summit or or in previous um, arrangements with the United States. And it also did not necessarily agree to anything that it hadn't already announced that it would be willing to accept in uh, in various statements that came out through uh, KCNA in the lead up to the summit. Right. North Korea succeeded in holding their line. They resisted that pressure. Uh, but the same cannot be said of the Trump administration. So the concession that Trump offered after the summit is on USFK exercises is astonishing. You know, that's it's over and above the expert consensus on what would be possible um, with respect to modifications in USFK force structure. It is over and above um, the preferences of our allies, of the Pentagon. It, it is frankly an enormous concession that. I'm not even convinced was requested by Kim Jong Un. They are um, they are celebrating that statement uh, in in K in their subsequent KCNA release, you know, as a as a measure that they had long um, sort of hoped for. But I, I think this might have been something that Trump donated. Um, mm. You know, it, it wasn't. Mm it wasn't made a specific condition of this communique by the North Koreans. I, there are consistent indications that Donald Trump thinks of vitiating the North, the U S South Korea Alliance as a benefit, right? That saves him money on the financial side, um, rather than as a concession to the North Koreans and the way that it was announced, right? It was clearly not coordinated with the Pentagon. It was clearly the South Koreans were clearly not informed of it. That is that is massively destructive to American credibility for any talks going forward. It absolutely invites the North Koreans to try to push on U.S. force posture as hard as possible. Right. Because Trump has indicated that he's willing to give ground on that front. Right. Which is no surprise. But furthermore, right, furthermore, it, it it does systematic and and possibly irreparable damage to the to the sort of the legitimacy and the standing of U.S. forces Korea. Right. Right. Look, like the alliance is definitely, you know, I've been very uncomfortable about where the alliance has been and is going, um, certainly throughout the first half of 2018, but also in 2017. Um, and this statement, you know, I want to go back to this idea that this was something that Trump organically brought up. And I don't want to get too much here into, you know, trying to read Trump's mind because God knows I'm not qualified to do that. Um, but uh you know, I, th I thought it was interesting that he specifically comes out of the summit meeting and he's talking about bomber flights of all things. And he's talking about the flying right. time hours. And he says, I know a lot about yes. airplanes. And that to me, you know, when I when I thought about that, I, you know, yeah, I, I totally, I totally imagined, um, 
you know, you remember the language last year in August uh, with the, yeah. you know, the Sky Pirates of Guam. Obviously, North Korea has long complained about bomber flights from Guam. So I could see it as something that they bring up, right? I mean, Kim Jong-un threatened to bracket Guam with Hwasong 12s last year unless the U.S., uh, you know, backed off on uh, on bomber flights. So, you know, I, I think the North Koreans have, have a good read on Trump, right? They talked about the Trump formula in, in the uh, KCNA statement that came out from uh, Kim Kae-gwan in the lead up to the summit. Um, after after Trump had canceled it, you know, he said that, oh, maybe the Trump formula will work. So I think, you know, they, they have this guy figured out, especially after, you know, the Doddard statement last year. They know he's sensitive to cost, that he's kind of a profit and loss kind of guy. He comes from a real estate business background. So it's like, hey, right. talk to him about how much it costs to house U.S. troops at Camp Humphreys, right? And talk to him about SMA talks, talk to him about bomber flight hours. Um, and, uh, you know, it seems to have worked. So, I mean, my, my read, it's interesting that, you know, you kind of saw this as Trump organically raising it, which is I think also entirely possible because this is something that he keeps on bringing up at campaign rallies and the like, um, the, uh, the cost of uh, you know host nation support, maintaining alliances. But in this in this case, it was it was specific enough that I actually think that the North Koreans um, had had a pretty good read on on how they could get this concession. And you know, at the beginning, I did say that it was mostly on script as far as the protocol went. This was the huge you know the the X factor, the Trump moment that everybody had been wondering. You know, what happens if you leave Trump and Kim Jong Un in a room alone together with with translators? You know, what does Trump end up conceding? And I think this was it. This was that moment. Right. Right. And, and so there's something else that, that you and I have talked about frequently is twice now on Twitter, Donald Trump has uh, has crowed about the about his about a claim that the North Koreans have paused research on um, nuclear uh, yeah. and missile um, programs. Uh, he said it twice now. And in my mind, this is this is absolutely not something we can overlook. It, it is dangerous on several levels, right? Just to sort of lay the groundwork, Trump, uh, uh, there's no way that the United States can be certain that North Korea has paused research, right? Either Trump is taking Kim Jong-un's word for it, or he's just fabricating this idea out of thin air because he thinks that it sounds good. It, It is massively unverifiable, even if international inspectors were on the ground in North Korean mm-hmm. um, for some material production facilities. So, right, this is, it, it certainly would be nice to have, but the entire intelligence bureaucracy should be and very likely is telling him that we cannot certify that. We have no reason to believe that this is true. Right. right? And in fact, North Korea has not offered a concession all spring that in any way impedes the progress of their nuclear and missile programs other than limits on nuclear and missile testing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we have every reason to believe that that research is still continuing, that that development is still continuing, that we are now moving well into the phase where uh, that, that Pompeo said at the beginning of the year, North Koreans would have the ability to strike the continental United States. Right. So why is this dangerous? Well, one of the reasons is Donald Trump seems to think that he's he's imposed a hard cap on the North Korean nuclear and missile program and that he's prevented North Korea from crossing that threshold. So to the extent that he is reason, reasoning rationally, he is doing so on a false assumption, which is that he believes that he has you know, imposed a cap on the North Koreans that he hasn't. That makes it more difficult to impose that cap later. But also, it's a huge problem for American credibility, right? 
it was always going to be a problem that we wouldn't we couldn't trust Donald Trump to give us an accurate readout of North Korean statements and guarantees. In that regard, it was helpful that there was a, a textual communique that was released at the summit. Right. But, you know, the North Koreans said nothing about halting research, you know, and so the it's essentially a lie to the American people about what was agreed, you know, pre- presumably for political purposes at home, but also American allies will be concerned that they're not getting the whole story, yeah. you know, and I think justifiably so. Yeah. You know, I've been I've been thinking about this. Um, those tweets were do, do certainly you think I'm weird. Inflating the concern? No, 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 not that. I mean, right. you know, I think I think what you outlined is entirely plausible and entirely within Trump's, uh, you know, capacity for uh, fabrication. Uh, but you know, if I if I you which know, is I, which is virtually limitless. Right, right. And you know, yeah. I mean, if I if I had to kind of you know, I've been thinking about this and and this business that came up with the missile engine test stand, right? That was that was a super weird specific technical concession that came up at the Singapore summit that Trump reportedly asked Kim. He said, "Hey, you guys have this missile engine test stand and we can see it because of the heat." So, you know, he was talking about US ISR capabilities right. to Kim Jong Un. But he said, "Hey, it would be great if you guys could dismantle this because we're worried about it." And Kim reportedly say, "Yes." I mean, obviously the North Koreans didn't include this in their statement. I don't think that's surprising, but that's a super weird moment that came out of the summit that Trump of, you know, out of all all things decides to fixate on a missile engine test stand and then you know i i went back to those tweets about research and i wonder you know trump's no technical expert on arms control i wonder if he was using research as shorthand for like something like static engine testing which i know is you know entirely irresponsible doesn't absolve him of of making that statement but in my mind you know uh, maybe he you know saw that 38 north report about the dismantling of the canister test stand um and he and, you know, and he's reading that as a sign that they're stopping research, which is obviously hugely exaggerated, right? One right. test stand does not um, mean that all of their R&D is off. But in my mind, you know, that's one plausible explanation if I was going to be super charitable to Trump. Yes. Um, but, you know, I want to talk about that engine um, that engine thing a bit more because um, that's actually a really interesting technical concession. Right. Um, because in my mind, you know, I, I think that the engine's test stand that they're talking about, which we don't have any confirmation on yet, um, is probably the, uh, the, uh, the static solid fuel test stand at uh, Hamhung, at, um, at the Magunpo site um, that um, open source experts have identified. And uh, that's where North Korea conducted a, a a test of a large unknown engine in October um, that I reported at the diplomat. And we don't know what that engine was for, but you know, a lot of us think that where North Korea is going next after showing off that it has liquid propellant engines for its ICBMs is eventually a solid propellant engine program for longer range missiles, right? We have the Pukuksong 2, and this is something that they're going to work on. It would make complete sense, right? If Trump has technical experts backing him, which Pompeo says that he does, right? Pompeo says that there was technical support right. going into this process. Right. It would make complete sense to fixate on that solid fuel test stand as a a technical concession. So that was actually something that I was actually quite happy to see come up, even though obviously, you know, it's, we're, we're kind of pulling at strings here. I mean, but we so, have a verbal so assurance. That that was something that was, you think that was something that was explicitly requested and received as a concession? Because the way that Trump addressed that in his press conference was that he said, the North Koreans offered us this after the statement was signed and agreed. 
Right, right. And yeah, it, it's actually unclear to me who asked for what there, because later then he, he makes it sound like he notified Kim Jong-un that, you know, the U.S. was observing the site with the, uh, you know, space-based infrared sensors right. and uh, wanted them to back off on it. But it's a really interesting, you know, thing that came out of all this. And maybe it's something that comes up in, you know, the next round of talks. They'll be led by Pompeo. Um, and we kind of start hitting the road. You know, Sung Kim in an interview today on the sidelines of the summit before Trump spoke said that, you know, there's a lot more work to be done. He was trying to be very diplomatic about where the process was standing. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that I think, you know, we'd, you know, we've talked about before, Adam. And, you know, we hinted at it in our Atlantic article where we argued that, you know, this is the kind of sweating the details that needs to happen. I mean, obviously, again, you know, we're grasping at straws here. This is very... This is very well, tenuous. And, but, and they're but very something. thin straws. They're sort of cocktail stirrers. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't want to I just want to put in context this concession on the missile test stand. If North Korea were genuinely interested in disarming, and this is an assumption that many people are making, right, including the South Korean defense minister, you know, is is making a charitable assumption of North Koreans' intentions to disarm and working backwards from there, then they should be willing to disclose sensitive facilities, right? Um, right and admit inspectors at an early date, agree to the principle of verification, certainly rhetorically, but also in practice, right? Put on the table a concrete timetable, right? Disclosure of information about nuclear sites, fissile material stocks, um, hidden facilities, the shape and structure of their arsenal, all of these things could have been issued and offered at the summit, you know, just as a, as a matter of course, it could have been negotiated ahead of time with Sung Kim's technical negotiating team, you know, and they could have received fair value for that. Um, all of these would have been plausible concessions that I would classify as major concessions. Mm -hmm. I take your point that dismantling, dismantlement of a solid the solid fuel test stand would be a consequential step that limits future development but like pungeri it's a reverse verification is important right it right it's not it's not conclusive that it prevents further development of these types of systems i i do not myself classify that as a major stepping stone towards denuclearization right you know yeah i mean you're absolutely right like pulling back you know my wish list would be for them to declare their covert enrichment facilities the uh, underground facilities that right. are rumored to right. exist in north korea you know let's talk about those um obviously you know we're we're really a far cry from that um but adam we're we're at the end of our time um on on today's podcast but before we wrap up um i wanted to ask you if you had any closing thoughts for us today um, so many thoughts on, on so many different levels. Um, you know, the, the, the real consequences of this summit, Kim Jong-un met many of his objectives already, you know, by the, by virtue of holding the summit and by virtue of American policy disorganization and mismanagement in the run up to the summit, right? Uh, sources of American pressure, sanctions, alliances, legitimacy, um, military exercises, all four of these elements of American pressure have been attrited in one way or another, right? So that's already a pretty significant gain for Kim Jong-un. American and allied interests depend completely on what happens in the weeks and months ahead. I worry that the summit didn't set us up to succeed in that effort, 
but it absolutely must be prosecuted and pursued diligently with with the participation of technical experts and with full application of American leverage as far as it can possibly go. The, the message that I'm trying to send in this podcast is, is that the process has not been ideal, but no one's rooting for it to fail. Right. What we're saying is that it, it absolutely must succeed and trying to, you know, sound the alarm that certain trends are not being, are, are not helpful in that regard. Right. No, I think that's a, I think that's a really good. And, uh, I think a good faith note to end on, honestly. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, I felt like a wet blanket all day cause I've been, you know, critical of the outcome of this, of this, um, summit declaration, but really, I mean, everybody wants to see this process succeed. It's just, um, you know, been overwhelmingly unlikely with the factors. I mean, even leaving aside the fact that the American principle ultimately at the end of the day is Donald Trump. Um, you know, it was encouraging to see at the, at the end of the day that we did have a team of experienced technical negotiators um, enter the room at the DMZ with their North Korean counterparts. Many of, uh, you know, Sung Kim and Cho Sun Hui have known each other for more than a decade now. They they get this stuff. They, they know the background. They know the history. Right. But really, you know, I wonder, you know, what if we weren't married to June 12th that, you know, negotiations were, you know, had carried on all summer. And they'd met in the early fall in September, for instance. I mean, what could have been possible? You know, we'll, we won't know. We might find out of, over the course of the sustained process. But I also worry that, you know, this this statement that we have in our hands now is the foundation for this round of U.S.-North Korea rapprochement. I think ultimately— For better, for better and for worse. Right, exactly. Right? And that question of what could have been possible yeah. will haunt us for decades. Yeah, I'm yeah, afraid. of course. All right, Adam. Uh, well, thanks a lot for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, but you're not yet a subscriber, please uh, make sure you do subscribe on either iTunes or Google Play. If you are a subscriber, but you haven't left us a review yet on either either of those platforms, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks and a lot for listening. follow the work of Ankit and myself at the Federation <laughs> of American Scientists Defense Posture Project. Right, exactly. Full disclosure, I am Adam's colleague also at the Federation of American Scientists in addition to being the diplomat. Um, so yes, do check that out. So thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back next week with more.